know, recording it and blasting it out on the internet, perhaps, maybe, I can help other people like me get out of our own way. Welcome back to Closure Optional. My guest this week is Chris Chiari. He is the owner of the Patterson Inn Hotel, which is a castle in the middle of the city of Denver, and it is hoping to become one of the first places where you can legally smoke weed, eat some food, stay the night, do what you want. The current law doesn't allow you to have a liquor license, a food license, and a cannabis license, so he's working right now with some of the state lawmakers to try and figure out a good way to make that happen. Chris is also a filmmaker. He's working with Aletheia Films to produce a documentary on the failed drug war as we know it, which is going to be called Public Enemy Number One, and it will be released at the end of 2018-2019, and I will have the details for that on this post. If you are curious about the drug war and how it got to the place it is and some of the hiccups that we have in legalization and some of the pathways that Colorado went through to get weed legalized, this is a great conversation. Also, if you're not interested in politics, unfortunately, whether we want to run away from them or not, politics happen with or without us. And sometimes, I think, most of the people that try to avoid politics because of all the bullshit are some of the best ones to get involved in it because they know what they're talking about or at least know what they want. So Chris has some great tips on how to get involved more in your community if you're interested in doing that and also some great information about the history of drugs in the U.S. He also mentions another documentary called 13th, which I'll put the details for that on here. And I've seen a great documentary about this called The House I Live In, if anyone's interested in that. Hope you guys have a great week. Talk to you again soon. Hey, Chris. Hey. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you. Well, here we are in the basement of my new hotel. This thing is amazing. In the pub, in the tavern. So you were just saying this is 119 years old. Uh, this building's 125 years 125, old. 125, yeah. It opened in 1893. Oh, wow. It looks like a French chateau, mm. and the architect actually traveled to France uh, to be inspired for what became the, the design of this home. Oh, wow. So it is a red stone French chateau in the heart of downtown Denver. And by all measures in America, this is a castle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I call it a castle. <laughs> oh, it's cool. It's got that great feeling right when you walk in, big high ceilings. Yeah, it's awesome. And right now we're in like the men's gentleman's parlor. The, really. It's, you know, we've, we've opened up. We are in a world where we I believe are getting past the restriction of access based on either color, creed, religion, <laughs> and gender, yeah. uh, thankfully. Yeah, I uh, what's fun about this house is Senator Patterson was a very liberal Democrat in his oh, time cool. in the early 1900s. I don't know if you want to go into politics, but I'm a pretty liberal Democrat, mm. um, involved very heavily in the county Democratic Party in this part of Denver where we're at right now, Capitol Hill, yeah. near the state capitol. And what's fun is Senator Patterson was very liberal, yeah. uh, founder of the Democratic Party here in Colorado. What would liberal be like for his time? Like what kind of policies would he be having? Race issues that are still front and center in America. Wow. An honest history of this country mm -hmm. does not just include the celebration of a couple great holidays and the accomplishment of Northern European whites, yeah, predominantly yeah. males. Yeah. Um, I'm an Italian-American. We came here a little later, had our struggles in, in becoming American, 
moved past that in ways that some other ethnic groups and cultures have never been able to achieve. Mm. Uh, America still harbors a great degree of ignorance. Yeah, and okay. we struggle with our own ability to be self-reflective to our own betterment. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the progressive issue around race relations, of which in the early 1900s would have been one generation removed from the end of the Civil War. Ah. Uh, you had a population in Denver that was heavily influenced by the Ku Klux Klan. Yuck. Where almost 30,000 of the 60,000 people that lived in Denver were male and members of that organization. Oh my God, that's uh, so gross. I mayor never knew that about Denver. was part of that team, Stapleton. Oh yes. I've and Senator name. Patterson wasn't part of that team. Wow. He was someone who uh, from an early time recognized that we had structural impediments to people's growth and success. Yeah, okay. Not anything that had to do with the individual's lack of ability to succeed and achieve, mm. but a society and a structure that was being designed, that had been designed, that was designed to be separate but equal. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I would be uh, perpetuate the ignorance if I could not, one, recognize as an Italian American in America, I am white. Mm -hmm. I, there is inherent privilege as a result of that. And I, I and anyone else who's white in America needs to be part of the solution, not expecting anyone who is not white to solve it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is an issue that was front and center in 1906, the 1910, uh, 1904 to 1910 when, when Patterson was the United States Senator. And it's an issue that's still alive today. Why do you think it still persists like that? If you have an economic system that is automatically designed to cut out half the population, women, Mm -hmm. your potential for success exponentially increases. Mm. If you can cut out anyone else that isn't just like you, your odds of success grow even higher. Wow. So uh, the economic system in America was built around finance and banking. Access to finance and banking is the secret to building land ownership. Mm -hmm. Land ownership is the secret to long-term wealth appreciation. Yeah. And banking and financing in America has historically, into the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, even till today. Uh, nobody wants to say the term still exists, but it's called redlining. It's okay. where banks will literally say that this part of town is undesirable for lending. Oh, yeah. So you're stuck then with residents in these neighborhoods that are forced to rent, not own, because they can't buy to own. Mm -hmm. They would then see great appreciations in neighborhoods, but not participate in it. They'd see it as rent increases, not as an appreciation of property value. Mm. So you have, we as, as, as a society have told families in certain parts of major cities in every corner of this country that your area, you will not participate in the economic appreciation. Yeah, okay. And that's where gentrification comes from. If all you yeah. can do is rent and never own, when the rent gets too high, you're out. Yeah. And if the next person's in a position to buy at those ridiculous prices, maybe they will. Developers come in and scrape neighborhoods, build these ugly townhomes that are showing up everywhere. Yeah, man. Then rent it out at market rate because they can get it, even though it, the, what they're building is subpar housing. It's not a product so much as we, we need more housing. That's where issues of, of, of volume, certainly, and, and mass and the population's moving into cities. Mm -hmm. Denver's also very attractive because it's, it's a young town. It's culture. It's big city, small town. It is a mm. cow town in the middle of the West, <laughs> right on the rail line. It isn't even Kansas. Kansas City is the big seat, uh, seat of the Federal Reserve. 
Yeah, okay. And Denver was the last major stop where all the cattle would be uh, grazed in the, in the land all around here. Cattle would then be brought to Denver and then trained east okay. to be slaughtered in Kansas City, which was where manufacturing and industry was happening. Okay. So we're still a small cow town yeah. that's becoming a big city. <laughs> yeah, and with the legalization of weed, I mean, that was just such an amazing transition. We were talking about this yesterday on the phone, but it's hard to even describe because, I mean, like all of the fear mongers, everybody, and, and I'm living in like the 1980s in Australia right now because they are still saying the same exact <laughs> rhetoric that was happening over here, like what, 10 years ago, 15 Sky's years ago? Sky's gonna fall. Yep, absolutely. Like everything's gonna go to shit. Everything's gonna fall apart. There's, you're gonna have drug drivers everywhere. You're right now in Australia, it's legal for them to pull you over for no reason. They, I mean, in America, you, they pull you over and then make up a reason, but sure. at least they, there's the but illusion. You have the Fourth <laughs> Amendment, you have the judicial systems in America, you have, if you can afford a good lawyer, <laughs> yeah, you have the option. Put another barrier of what privilege looks like in America. Mm, that's you can true. Afford a good lawyer, you interact with a different judicial system than if you can't. Yeah, oh, And it's wow. not to say oh anything about God. a public defender. You're dealing with people who are public servants that are inundated with cases, have workloads that exceed what someone in private practice would have handle, wow. and they lack then the ability to be um, intimate in knowing their client, knowing their story, knowing their struggles, knowing the impact of just plead it out. Yeah, America, wow. when you're poor, you just plead it out. You plead and you just take a sentence and mm -hmm. it could be probation, it could be this, but you end up with the record. And now let's talk about what happens if you're poor in America and you get busted with weed. Yeah. Still, if you get caught with over an ounce of marijuana in Colorado, it's illegal. Oh, wow. If you get caught with over uh, five ounces, it's a third degree, it's a misdemeanor. If you get uh, caught with a, over a pound, it can be a felony still. Mm -hmm. So let's be careful Let's not tell anyone that marijuana is legalized in Colorado. No, marijuana is heavily regulated in That's Colorado. True. And one of the beauties of regulation is it allows this very open market-based, consumer-based economy to establish. Mm. On the other side, heavily regulated means it's still a crime if you do certain things. Yeah. But alcohol's the same way, right? Mm -hmm. You can't make bathtub gin anymore, <laughs> mostly out of quality standards. You don't want someone to go blind from drinking bad alcohol. Yeah. You can't uh, distill, right? It was called moonshining, mm -hmm. but now all the states have created distillation licenses. So you have a lot of uh, micro distilling happening in America, the same way micro beer came up oh, cool. 20 years ago. Micro distilling has become a thing. So cannabis, there's, there's similarities. Mm -hmm. So there things you can and you cannot do within a regulated environment. What do you think are the, like some of the risks of, of cannabis in the way, like you're saying, like if somebody was producing it outside of regulation, and making somebody go blind from moonshine, what would you think, like, are there risks to that? It's, so we call it the legal market, the black market, the gray market. Okay. Uh, the black market is illegal cultivation. It's still happening. It's people that are, we, we, you can't go a year without reading a story in the Denver Post, in the Colorado Journalism that's talking about someone getting busted in a national forest mm. or even a state park. Oh growing God. a large cultivation. Oh my God. It's usually people from outside of the state, outside of the area that are trying to do illegal production. They're using whatever pesticide that works, mm -hmm. not what would be safe and, and now considered legal. And they're very gorilla grows and that market still exists. Mm. So you always hear about that. Gray market um, is the, what, what is, well, what's, what's 
criticized as being the gray market. I don't want to blanket make a declaration that what everyone's doing here is wrong. Uh, is people who are caregivers. Oh, yeah. Most caregivers are honest, well-meaning individuals that are growing to the benefit of someone else. They don't necessarily need to know you, but they have a big plant count. And if you're a medical card patient and they're a cultivator with, with the medical credentials, they can sell to you. Yeah, okay. Some individuals in that space, a small group, are growing using this legal license with 99 plants to grow a large amount. And then however that's ending up in the market, it's not ending up through you and me making a transaction. You have a med card. I have a med card. Yeah, I see. It's not going because it can't legally end up into a legal dispensary. So it's finding its way somewhere into the market. What, why would they be doing that? Why would they not be trying to sell to a dispensary? You can't, well, you can't. So the, so the regulations wow. say that if you are a medical producer, you must, by regulation and law, produce 70% of what you sell. If you're a medical recre if you're a medical okay. marijuana grower and distributor here in Colorado, it's called vertical integration. It was from how they set up in the very beginning. Okay. You can sell your product wholesale to another medical business, but you can't, as a licensed business, buy more than thirty percent of your inventory from someone else. Mm -hmm. And so, if you're talking about the other items like uh, infused products and extractions, then how do you get to that balance? So most medical then is grown. You grow it yourself. Okay. So there is no market where a medical caregiver cultivating can then legally transfer what they're growing into the legal market. It's not oh, okay. Now let's go to the recreational side. Yeah. Recreational got rid of vertical integration. You can originally, you could just be a store that sold it, but you still had to have a store to grow it. And then it changed where you could just grow. Okay. So there are people that have stores and grow their own that just have stores and sell and then people that just grow for those stores that sell. And that's before we get into the uh, intricacies of manufactured infused products. It's called the MIPS market. Okay. Uh, MIPS is where we're getting shatter and the high-end yeah. concentrates and then putting that into food well beyond Space Cakes in Amsterdam. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Oh, it is amazing. <laughs> it's, I was saying this to everybody when I went back home last time. Like It's literally like walking into a candy store. It's, it's with the chocolate factory. It is. It's the chocolate factory. You just walk in there. and I mean, besides the like jo jars of the most beautiful trimmed buds you've ever seen in your life, just jars for miles. And then there's like... I had granola, like I had muesli I put on my cereal. <laughs> I, I know one company makes a granola, but they make it with their, uh, they make it like a, yeah, it's their sleepy time, their favorite nighty night indica. Yeah, okay. Because there is that physical difference of at least the smoked flour of a sativa versus an indica. Mm -hmm. Everyone has a slightly different reaction to cannabis. Yeah. You know, like, Parrot, do, do, do you have any friends that if they have one beer, they can't control themselves? Oh, yeah, they just have to keep drinking, yeah. No, no, I mean the ones that can't even have one beer. Oh. <laughs> the one drink, one drink. Wine, yes. Wine, yes. So I that, do know So that every now and then, some, so you'll, you'll have a friend that just, they just can't hold their alcohol. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, you have friends that just don't, they can't get enough. Yep. Uh, cannabis has that same reality. Yeah. Some people would take one hit, have anxiety, find themselves very uncomfortable, have no interest. That's probably what happened to a lot of smokers who tried it in the 60s and never want to come back and try again. Mm -hmm. On the other side, I like to call myself a functional alcoholic of weed. <laughs> I don't yeah. like to. I would just be dishonest if I didn't acknowledge that. <laughs> yeah. We talked about this yesterday. I yeah, used to man. call it the three martini lunch guy. Yep. In the 80s, <laughs> you'd go to work, you'd go have three martinis at lunch, you'd come back to work for a couple more hours. 
and that was considered sociable, normal, mm -hmm. and not everyone could do it. Yeah, yeah. But some people certainly could. They could hold their alcohol. I've smoked a really big, giant one gram joint with my first cup of coffee this morning. Yeah. Sitting in my backyard before I came over to the hotel. And I'll do it again at lunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one more this afternoon and another before bed. Yeah, man. So. Well, and, and yeah, you're exactly right. It's, it's such a personalized experience. And with psychoactive compounds, obviously mm -hmm. it's in the name, psychoactive. It's whatever's going on in the inside of your individual brain. And we obviously all know that nobody's two experiences are the same. Mm -hmm. It's so frustrating to me when I'm trying to explain this to people. Because as I was saying to you yesterday, I have stopped drinking but I still smoke weed, and I have it in various uh, forms. I mean, allegedly, I smoke weed in Australia. I <laughs> have to throw that in, in there. America, <laughs> in America, certainly California, Colorado, uh, Washington, Oregon, uh, Massachusetts, Vermont. Oh, I don't want to miss any. Where else? Where else are our recreational states? Oh my God, that's, that's a huge list compared to last time I was yeah, here. Yeah, we're up to awesome. thirty-four states that allow medical marijuana. Wow. Oklahoma being the newest. Yeah. Oh, just well done, it. Oklahoma. Uh, so 24 states of the 50 in America allow citizens to get signatures and put changes to the law directly to the ballot. Oh, wow. And the okay. other 26, you can't. And the Ooh. only way to get something on the ballot is if the state legislature puts it there. And some states... And how states, did you get that in there? How do you get it uh, to the state It goes back to how the... Well, if, if you're in a state that doesn't allow it, you literally have to do it one elected official at a time. Yeah, wow. So uh, government is a personal thing, mm -hmm. meaning they're people. Yeah, They're yeah. persons. They're individuals. Yeah. Every single member of the parliament in Australia represents a district mm -hmm. that is probably only a few hundred thousand people large, where tens of thousands of people probably participate in the elections, mm -hmm. and only half of that generally plus one decides who wins. So the number of people actually involved in these things are very, very small. So anybody you know that has any interest in what it means to be engaged in a substantive conversation about cannabis reform and legalization, the best place for them to start is through the building of a personal, familiar relationship with an elected official. Yeah. I ask this of every elected official, what can I do to be of use? Yeah, yeah. Most Elected officials are bombarded on a constant basis with people asking for something. Yeah, yeah. Every now and then, remember their people and see what you can do to help. If you have someone who you really believe in and like, if your local person is someone you really like, mm -hmm. go be involved when they do their campaigns. Yeah, okay. Be involved when they come and do that town hall. Every elected official in every corner of the world engages if they're elected in a democratic environment engages with that population and if they don't a few phone calls putting together 60 people in a room you probably get them to come to you yeah, wow. build those relationships so when you see them on the street in a restaurant you say hi how are you not hey i need something yeah. and over time you then earn an opportunity to share your reality mm -hmm. uh, your information and it comes with credibility yeah, it doesn't okay. come detached is that how they made the reforms here? I mean, so each one of these states, basically, the people, enough people spoke and said, no, we want this change, and the legislature had to listen. There's a whole lot of things that happened. Yeah. <laughs> In Colorado, it was really people-driven. 
very early on. This is one of the 24 states that allows citizens to put things on the ballot. What's that called? It's called either um, an initiative or a referendum. One okay. is to the state statute, which are the state laws that the people at the legislature changes all the time. Okay. Another is to a state constitution. Yep, okay. I think in Australia they call it a plebiscite. Okay. Does that sound? Where people can then collect signatures to put questions to the, in front of the Yeah, audience. basically try and get it heard before Great. parliament, pretty much. Perfect. I think, but I also heard that because we are still under the Queen's rule, mm -hmm. that the parliament really always have the ultimate choice. So even if 99% of the people said, we want this thing, the parliament could still go, nah, it's not important. Absolutely. Oh, true. So is that the same in but America? But that's true here. Oh, wow. When you look at okay. America. We are a country that without question, are many of us have moved, well, first off, by and large, regardless of your political persuasion, we believe that love is love, right? Yeah. By and large, we've come to that reality that love is love, mm -hmm. that, that institutions of government don't have a place in telling people who they can or cannot love. Yep, that yep. it should facilitate the consummate uh, or the, the establishments of these relationships and the, and the dis dis dispensing of these relationships when necessary. But other than that, it can't tell you, at least between two natural people of age, Mm -hmm. Meaning we can rule out things like bestiality. That was always the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the rub. Republicans would say, oh, if you legalize same-sex marriage or gay marriage, people are going to marry inanimate objects and, and animals. <laughs> no, marriage between natural people of yeah. age, okay? They're, um, but we, we've got. But what about that. AI, though? There's a, a guy who just feature. opened up a, a club in France. Yeah. All AI. So guys go in for an hour with an AI. Oh my doll, God. Oh my and God. the neighbors want to shut it down. And the police told him there's nothing he's doing wrong. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not adult entertainment. No. <laughs> oh my God. Are they those Japanese so, dolls? I've seen that. I've, I don't know what you're watching on the internet. <laughs> I've seen this. I've, they're crazy, man. They've, they've, they have facial expressions. And this, the one that I saw recently, it still looks kind of fucked up, but it's, it looks like a sex doll, so it's like big, properly crazy dimensions. And, but their face is still just a little, you know, it's like not quite right. But um, the crazy thing about it is that he was saying that they're developing the software inside them for the Android, I guess, the robot, to be able to develop a personality based yeah. on your likes and preferences so that it, over time, the more you interact with it in the same way that the more you interact with your smartphone, it gets better at p picking up the words. That's the same concept, but the sex doll will know what, it, what you want from it. We have seven billion people in the world and growing. Now you tell me I can have a couple little memory seat type options, like five or six different memory seat buttons, and that way, because well, I might take that guy up in France's idea and <laughs> start this here. chateau right here. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh, it's, it's such a creepy thought to me. Like I think there's something really beautiful about the um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the unknownness, the like danger of having a relationship with another oh. person. And I don't mean danger in a scary way, like that I like to get choked, <laughs> you know, like that's extreme. What I mean is that like- The risk of being vulnerable. Yeah, the, there's a risk hurt. of being vulnerable. They can constantly change their mind. You know, the, there's an autonomous nature to mm. human relationships that can't be- yeah, but that's the thing that can be so frustrating about relationships. You know, the fact that you can that's be true. transparent, be open, be honest, and somebody could just wake up with a different thought in their head and they never talk to you again and all you get is, uh, you know, no hard feelings. Yeah, oh, I know, I know, it is scary. Fuck, it's awful. So, forget that. Let's go back. Animatronic <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> Robots just for everybody. Robot. Yeah, how do we get to this off we? Let's go back to we. Let's yes, yeah, anyway. So, um, so political history. 
Yeah. Uh, a seminal election in America that uh, changed, I think, ways that we interacted with the world that we're still dealing with was the election of 2000. Okay. Al Gore loses to George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. The people of Colorado, so we're getting to the initiative before, put a question on the ballot called Amendment 20 to legalize medical marijuana and to create the caregiver model. Okay. It was the first layer of saying that if you are a medical patient, you can get some kind of recommendation, then you can grow for yourself mm -hmm. without, in the state without being penalized or arrested. You can grow for other people. And so the first tier of that, and you can grow for yourself, was the first tier of that. And that's a very important point because a lot of the legislature that they've been trying to introduce in Australia, or at least the ones that they're even considering, are all pharmaceutical models. Yeah. And it's uh, millions of dollars to get the licensing and the regulation um, and to meet the regulatory requirements. So your facility has to have like a ridiculous amount of security and it has to be hidden in a certain place, whatever. So that was the only model kind of that they're considering. But what Colorado did and is a three-tiered model. It's pharmaceutical options. Was that, was pharmaceuticals even considered at that no, point? No, not Home at all. grow is pretty Some much. Some of the this point. is what you're starting to see now in hemp, where okay. they're creating the three tracks. But no marijuana, because no pharmaceutical would touch it because it was still federally illegal. Oh, the idea okay. was how do you facilitate and create a path forward, and then create what becomes cultivation in the state's regulated, somewhat safe environment, yep. uh, which the federal government has stayed out of so far, but still is federally illegal. Yeah, okay. Uh, so we went with, with this, this Wild West undefined model. Mm -hmm. So I sat down with an extraordinary individual who was the president of the Senate when Amendment 64 was implemented. Oh, cool. And she's now uh, the chair of the Colorado Democratic Party. My question was, how come there wasn't a push to take federal standards around food preparation, food safety, around labeling and packaging, pharmaceutical food standards, all these models that were already established. How come there wasn't an effort to take that, implement that, and refine it for this industry? And the response was that the industry, by and large, said, no, let's start from scratch. Wow. And every other industry said, by and large, we don't want to touch this. Yeah, yeah. So they created it from scratch. Oh, <laughs> wow. But we have standards that are continually developing. Yep. We have standards that are getting more complex. We have the struggle between an activist base that sees this book that's now uh, a thousand pages wide and they wish it was two pages wide mm -hmm. and the reality is it's going to 12,000 pages <laughs> wide before it's over. Yeah, true. And, you know, let's regulate it like alcohol. One of the biggest comments in, in the cannabis space, especially among first tier, the people that were behind Amendment 20. And again, Amendment 20 created this, this medical marijuana environment where the people said, we want the right to make it ourselves. Yes. Uh, and so it was people-driven. And no one that was people-driven trying to get signatures that were the um, that first generation of, of marijuana crusaders in Colorado, they weren't looking to make a pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. They were yeah. looking at holistic treatments and cures, whether it's Rick Simpson's oil where you use acetone to, to burn down the plant matter into something mm -hmm. you can ingest, um, or whether it's uh, Haley's Hope or Charlotte's Web, which are the CBD THC balanced um, sub, sublingual oils. And would you mind just explaining that? I mean, most of the people listen to this know a lot about weed that they buy from a guy around the corner. <laughs> and so go and buy a bag of weed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So, T I mean, THC, everybody knows, is the chemical that gets you high in weed. And we all know that in Australia because they test for it while you're driving. Yes. So that's the one that they're looking for to see if you're stoned, which well, is obviously ridiculous. Well, they test for cannabinoids. Okay. They don't test, test for THC, though it is the most prevalent and in the highest concentration. They are testing for cannabinoids, which sadly there are 111 now recognized different chemicals that are all occurring within the cannabis plant within the cannabinoid family. And uh, so that's what they're picking up on. Some cannabinoids, because they also fall into the very similar category as antioxidants, show up in other things. Oh, uh, true. So there are false positives. You have too many poppy seed bagels, you can get a false positive on a marijuana test. Oh, wow. So that's because they're picking up something that is naturally occurring in nature. The endocannabinoid system is also what they are now calling the um, cellular transfer of chemicals inside the body mm -hmm. that are 100% identical, but the human equivalent of, to endocannabinoids or can 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 cannabis can substances, the cannabinoids. Yep. So they readily plug into receptors that are already in our body mm -hmm. because, let's not be any shocking, I imagine you have an audience that believes in evolution. <laughs> so we evolved somewhere in human development, we evolved side by side with hemp and cannabis plants. Yes. We likely ate their seed, we likely ate their leaves. Some narratives, like if you go to a Steve Hager, who's basically the godfather of cannabis ritual, founder of the Cannabis Cup, longtime editor of High Times Magazine, uh, he'll tell you that Soma in the Bible, which is a leaf plant boiled in goat's milk, okay. is a healing elixir yeah. that cures disease. So one of the ways you extract cannabis is by heating it. And then one of the ways that you can suspend it into food is by using fats. Mm -hmm. So fatty foods will actually bond with the 111 cannabinoids, suspend it so that you can either drink it or eat it. Yeah. So the likelihood, the science, what we now know about the science of cannabis extraction for edibles production, and what the description of what Soma was, yeah, it's a really, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. So we've been familiar with, have consumed in, in a multitude of ways, the grains of it, we've used it, we've eaten the leaves, we've, we've, we've developed, that's why we have it in our system. Yeah. Same reason why we have opioid receptors in our system. We've evolved side by side with these plants. So cannabis is a very, very complex plant, but no, it's a flower. No two flowers are the same. You know, there's a thousand different types of lilies. Yeah, yeah. Before you even get to tulips. So cannabis has that extraordinary depth of variation within its genetics. Yeah. And we're still learning because we now have 20,000 plant, 40, 50, 60,000 plant cultivations happening. My God. where people with keen eyes are, are looking for the best strains, looking for the best characteristics. Now those different combinations of different chemicals will give you a different effect. The big picture, the easy sweep is um, indica to sativa. Sativa's higher THC, lower CBD, and I'll get to that in one second. Indica is, higher TH, is high THC, higher CBD. Uh, THC is tetrahydrocannabinol. If you were to eat bud, is an acid that your body would naturally break down, and it's a very potent antioxidant. If you de and it doesn't get you high. Doesn't get you high. Mm -hmm. Can't cross the blood-brain barrier. If you decarboxylate, is what the term is. Mm -hmm. It's basically if you heat it over 260 degrees Fahrenheit, 
you basically burp off a carbon atom mm -hmm. off, the, off the cannabis chemical structure that makes it what's known as delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, which is a small enough chemical chain that it can cross the blood-brain right. barrier. Uh, if you eat it, it goes into, I think, 8 and 11. It metabolizes in different ways, which have slightly different effects. Is it typically more psychoactive when it's eaten than when it's smoked? Depends on if it was properly prepared. You know, if you just eat it, it won't do anything. Yeah. The CBD state transfers, so with CBD eaten or smoked will relax your body. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about CBD. CBD is the second biggest, most prominent of 111 chemicals. Uh, it breaks into a couple different chains. Some are for anti-anxiety. Predominantly, CBD seems to play a really big role, last my reading, on anti-inflammation. So it's oh, an yeah. anti-inflammatory. Yeah, we know a lot of fighters that are sponsored by well, CBD Life, CBD Oils. And All starting to emerge as a post-match, post post-training recovery tool. Because mm -hmm. it does not cross the blood-brain barrier. It has no psychoactive element. But it, it, I, I call it feeling groovy. Mm -hmm. and you feel more relaxed. You get a little strut to your step when you're walking. <laughs> yeah. I have a lot of CBD. I'm just like really calm, relaxed. That's the relaxing element. Mm -hmm. uh, how they all mix together then. What combination of THC, CBD, CBN, all these different chemicals is what then contributes to the varying effects of different flowers. Right. So there is, yeah, and this is that, you know, the common frustration when somebody says, oh, I can't smoke weed because it makes me paranoid. It's like, well, you, you probably have got no, I mean, you A, don't know what you were smoking. You have no idea what that ratio was. So the next time you could smoke something totally drastically different and have a different yeah. experience. But the trouble is, um, I mean, there's just so many variables with weed and it's hard to even like bring them all down into one. But first, the temperature at which that it's decarboxylated is going to turn on or turn off certain cannabinoids, right? So mm -hmm. um, for us, it's 185 deg uh, degrees Celsius is the low level where THC starts to decarboxylate, yep. I think. And then it goes it up. Vaporizes it. Yeah, that's where it vaporizes it. But so then, so besides that, so whether they're turned on or turned off will probably give you a different effect. Obviously, the genetics of the plant itself mm -hmm. will give you a different Right, where well, they're all different. Whether or not about. it was uh, sprayed with pesticides. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, did they use miracle Grow to grow it, or did they use natural organic fertilizers? Yeah, because a lot of people were saying that they were getting, like, violently sick off of cannabis in legal countries. There and is it a was this in legal, was right? Yeah, and so it there's was there's a claim that, uh, that there is uh, a syndrome emerging. Right. Where people who smoke too much, all of a sudden, every time they smoke, they get nauseous. Mm-hmm. I keep hearing about it. I personally haven't seen it. And like I said, I smoke a lot and I personally haven't suffered from it. Mm -hmm. But I remember <clears throat> gagging on weed. Okay, yeah, that okay. was mold. Oh, yeah. I remember sure. <coughs> like a really light cough right in the throat. Oh. For me, right below an, the Adam's apple. That was generally pest mites uh, that were in the weed. Oh, yeah. Uh, then, so, so. Legal market, right? Now we know. There, there used to be, I used to get weed in college that was so moldy that every hit you'd gag. Ugh. And I barely, I was making four fifteen an hour, so when I could scrape up enough to go buy a $35 eighth, I didn't care how bad it was, I had to smoke that eighth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I remember struggling through a couple bags. Then Ugh. I remember when the $50 eighth came along, 
but it was northern lights. All of a sudden, northern lights came along this one particular strain. It was one of the early seeds that somebody not only isolated and stabilized, but they mass produced. Mm -hmm. And okay. what that entails is, so do you remember your Mendel? No. In 1536, a little German monk named Mendel was growing pea pods in the back of the monastery. Okay. And he started drawing pictures of what was happening. And what he realized, this is the father of modern genetics, what he realized was from any two pair, male and female, there are 16 potential genetic offspring. That if you bring the same pair together, you'll get 16 different genetic, what combination they appear in. And he needed to sprout 100 seeds to realize they were just 16. Yeah. But he put the effort into realize to that specificity that these different variations. Okay. That yeah. is true in everything. Yeah, That's wow. That's the science of genetics. Northern Lights gets isolated. Somebody breeds a male and a female marijuana plant. They get this particular strain. Then you have to breed it back to yourself or back to that original male. Okay. In the second generation, I believe you get half as many. It goes from eight, 16 to 8. Then you pull out the, the one that's the most like what you wanted from the last one, and you rebreed it either back to that male or back to itself. And now you're going to get four variations, two, and then your goal is to isolate it. So if most of the commercial seeds that you'd buy today, it should be at least 85%, I believe, or higher. Will you, you ordered Super Lemon Haze? Eight and a half out of 10 of those seeds are going to be Super Lemon Haze. Yep, okay, okay. Or, or 17 of 20 yep. will be Super Lemon Haze. Those other three are going to be any one of the other potential genetic combinations of those other 15. Yeah, yeah. They'll be slightly different. And every now and then something pops out of there that people are like, oh my God, that's the next amazing strain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Mutants. you have to isolate it. So it's called, um, it's, it's, it's basically the fourth generation. You have to breed it back to itself four generations. Okay. In order to stabilize the genetics of a seed within a reasonable marketable limit. In order to get hemp seeds certified in Colorado, you have to do that 28 times. Oh, wow. That's how stable it has to be. Oh, wow. That's what Monsanto does, right? So Monsanto grows the 16. They find the best characteristics. This one's drought resistance. This one grows really tall, really fast. Yeah, and yeah. they look for which one of those is the ideal one. Then they pull it out, and that becomes next year's crop. Yep. Right? It's, it's, it's sad, sick, funny. <laughs> Some of the activists in cannabis are also, and by and large, number of people that share very vocal frustrations about how we produce food in America, especially yeah. around companies like Monsanto, without necessarily self-reflecting and realizing that- <laughs> That's what we do with it. Yeah, we're, we're already, Monsanto gonna come into weed, now we're, we were already utilizing those tools. Yes, yeah, big well. business is gonna sadly come in and take over weed, except in places like Colorado where we carved out the space for self-growth. Yeah, wow. So that was a big, that was a Huge. very big important I'm step. Gonna, now we're gonna go back to 2000. So we were talking about that little election. Sorry yeah. to be scattered all over the place. Not at all. No, this is really interesting. Marijuana's on the ballot for medical marijuana, 2000 in Colorado. Al Gore loses the national election by one electoral vote. But That's Colorado right, yeah. was eight electoral votes that year, maybe seven. So if he had flipped Colorado, because who won Colorado? George W. Bush. Damn. By how much? Come on, Colorado. 50.2% uh. to 498 0.4%, uh. 
Okay, with three million people voting, you're talking about maybe maybe fewer than 20,000 people if they had voted the opposite way decided that election. That's how close it was. Amendment 20 was on the ballot, medical marijuana. Al Gore campaigns in Colorado and they ask him, where do you stand on this medical marijuana initiative? And he says, too soon, too fast, there's no science, I can't support it. Marijuana won that year, 52-48, four percentage points. Fuck. 200,000 voters. Yeah, wow. Decided that, that election. So in a great what if moment, it shows the Gore. potency of how early cannabis was proving to be uh, a topic that a large number or a majority of voters were willing to engage in yep. even long before. And this goes back to now what you were saying. Elected officials, what if 90% of the people want it, but the MPs can still go against it? What about America? There's a perfect example. Yeah. Al Gore was not obligated to support medical marijuana, but he didn't have a big vision appreciation of the reality of the world, how they frame the question, and what its potential impact would be on the ultimate results and final vote in that election. Yeah. There was just an article today in an American uh, political paper about a Florida senator who's recently come out in support of medical marijuana and full-throated, yes, medical marijuana is great. Nobody asked him about recreational because he'd probably still demonize that. Yep. But this is a guy who's a very conservative Democrat who was anti-weed his entire life who would have probably turned his own kid in for it yeah. up until realizing it's now politically expedient to support it. Yeah. Oh, so, it's so creepy. Yay. We've seen a bunch of that. And, I mean, and in some ways, it's a benefit because at least the conversation's being had, but they're so creepy about it. It's like she's sitting around in an office chair going, what are the kids like these days? How, many, how can we scam more people? And sadly, and so let's talk about what's happening. So Colorado didn't create an all-out initial pharmaceutical market. Mm. Colorado didn't create a big industry. It really did create something that was designed to be mom and pop, small operators. Yep. Uh, it used to be relatively cost approachable to establish one of these businesses. Now it's gotten more expensive. Mm. Uh, product of rent. You know, there were so many dispensaries at one point that, that the number of places that you... So if you want to have a dispensary, you have to have a landlord who's willing to accept you having that business. Okay. If your landlord has a loan or any kind of bank financing on their building, technically they can't because they're receiving money from a federally illegal business, so your bank won't let you have a mortgage. Because all the banks in Australia are, are sorry, in America are federal. Everything is ultimately chartered to the federal government. Okay. Yes, or, or it participates in a federal banking backside of the system that allows money to transfer between everything. And that was the big problem at the start with the dispensaries because um, the state had legalized it, but the federal government hadn't. Well, so still, the federal government still hasn't still has, legalized it. Yeah, of course. So I can't legally bank anywhere. Wow, so that it was all cash. So you have to walk in, get cash out, walk out. And there was real problems with, like, how do you transport all that cash out of your store? So it's still an all-cash business. Wow, okay. Uh, you were using an ATM in the store. It's still all-cash transactions. There are some um, uh, basically at-the-counter debit card options that have started appearing. Okay. But not, not everyone's using it. It's basically then like using a credit card. Mm -hmm. But it's an at-the-counter ATM transaction. So still cash, but there's no actual money changing hands. Yep, it's all okay. done electronically. So it feels and looks like a credit card. We are banking now. We do all, if, if a great guy named Kayvon Kalpari, he's running for mayor in Denver right now. Uh, one of the early pioneers of 
of cannabis legalization, and he said it about 18 months ago, that if you don't, if you have a cannabis business and you don't have banking, that's you don't have banking. Yeah. Because everyone else is figuring ways forward. And what happened is one institution stepped up and is accepting our deposits, allowing everyone to write checks, but doesn't offer you interest. You know, it's not real banking. You can't get a loan through them, mm -hmm. but you can simply make a deposit and write checks. So you basically are not now burying your cash in the back cash. garden. We're not burying cash. Now let's talk about what's known as 280E, 280E. It's the section of the American tax code that says, if you are engaged in a federally illegal business, you are still responsible to pay federal income tax. <laughs> what the hell? If you're selling drugs, selling stolen property, selling your body, or selling stuff out of your home without a license, you are obligated to report that income and pay taxes. Oh my God. What did Al Capone go to jail for? Tax evasion. <laughs> so goes oh back to Capone, and then it shows up in the 80s. And what they said was there was a case where they busted a drug dealer, they got his car, they got the drugs, they got the cash, guy's on trial, he's on, out on bail, but he uses his wealth unrelated to the drugs for bail. So they came up with civil asset forfeiture. They came up with ways of tying up people's assets. And civil they came up. Civil asset forfeiture. We'll Would you mind that. explaining what we'll that is? That. Yeah. So 280 is a section of the tax code that says even if you're engaged in a federally illegal business, you still have to pay income tax. But because you're involved in a federally illegal business, you may not deduct normal operating expenses to offset the income. So let's do a hypothetical. You're a marijuana business, a small little corner shop. You do $1 million a year in business. You are only working, even if you're working on a 50% margin, mm -hmm. okay? 50% means half your cost is, let's, let's even less, a third. A third of your cost goes towards the production of the product. So 300,000 is gonna go towards the production of the product. 300,000 is gonna go towards rent and employees and all that stuff, 600,000. Yep. Your income is, 400,000. Normally, your income tax would have been applied to that 400,000. Yes. It used to be 35%, now it's 21%. So it used to be, let's go with the 35%, it would have been 35, 70, $140,000 in tax. Yep. So you made 400, you owe $440,000 in tax. But two thirds of these deductions here are no longer allowed. So now you have a million dollars in income, but you can only deduct 200,000. Now you got to multiply 35 times eight. eight. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. 280,000. So on your million dollar business, before you get into any other costs, and this is very, very basic math, what looks like a really profitable business is scraping by. Wow. Oh my God. So this became, is the reality that we still face in the cannabis industry. Wow. Awesome. All right, civil asset forfeiture. Yes. So civil asset forfeiture happens every single day on the roads of America where the police will pull someone over, suspect something suspicious. Uh, I believe I smelled weed in the car, but I didn't find any. Mm -hmm. And they had $3,000 in cash. I believe the $3,000 in cash was used to buy weed, is intended to be used to buy weed, was the product of the sale of weed. That's why I smell weed in the car. The, Betcha the person had the weed, they sold the weed, they got the money. I'm gonna seize it. You get a receipt, I stole your money, I took your money. Mm -hmm. You now, in every other situation, I think there's weed in your car, I arrest you, police officer. 
You now go through the judicial process. You're innocent till proven guilty. They have to have evidence that you had weed the whole bit. Now let's go with civil asset forfeiture. I think that this was involved in drugs. I'm taking the $3,000. You now need to go to court to prove that the $3,000 was unrelated to drugs. It's Fuck. guilty until, until proven. proven Your assets are guilty until proven innocent. So I'm just wrapping up a documentary with a filmmaker named Robert Ripberger and Alethea Films. Oh, cool. My company's called King of Quality Productions. Uh, the project right now, I believe our final title is Public Enemy Number One. And it looks at uh, American drug policy from 1968 to today. Oh, cool. Which really follows the trends of the executive. Changes in presidents changed American drug policy. Wow. And you had this entire institution of bureaucracy that was saying, hey, it's bad, but not so bad. And hey, it should be engaged through public policy. It should be engaged through drug treatment. The Portuguese even say you smoke pot because you didn't get hugged enough as a kid. Right. <laughs> so these things play into it, but nobody should be going to jail for it. Right. And then time and time again in the 70s and 80s, you see this shift in American drug policy away from public health towards incarceration. Mm -hmm. And it's related to race struggles that we talked about before. It's related to um, domination and control. It's related to profit because American prisons are by and large a are, are profit center. Mm -hmm. Even if the physical structure is owned by the taxpayers of a state, how the food gets in there, all of that stuff is done through state contracts. In Florida, where I was very politically involved for years, it, it was like several dollars a minute to make a phone call. It's a regular telephone, it's a pay phone. Put a quarter in, make a phone call, but there are services in there that then the prisoners can only call collect and they have to only call through this one long distance company mm -hmm. and they charge ridiculous prices. Yep, yeah, yeah. And the families that are forced and hit with multi bills, you know, three, four-digit bills when you're on a low end of an economic... So you're not, this is not struggle. even just private prisons. I mean, because there's a lot of talk about the, pri the prison industrial complex, that these are privately owned prisons yes. that are making money based on inmates. But that is crazy. I never even thought of that. But yeah, of course, like all the catering that's going into there, all, all of these it. are private companies. All wow. So, so drug policy in America, what I realized with Nixon because we had this great interview, and, and what he said was Nixon's frustrations were that black African-American populations were, by Nixon's measure, out of control. Young white liberals were out of control with their anti-war. Mm -hmm. Anti-Vietnam And the war. First Amendment protects your right to free speech. It does not protect screaming fire in a crowded theater, but it does protect your right to say this is an injustice and I don't like it. Mm -hmm. protects that right, except in one circumstance. You have no rights, you may not participate in the voting process if you have a felony. So since they couldn't control what came out of your mouth, they found a really convenient uh, connection between the criminalization of what you put in your mouth mm -hmm as a way of restricting what came out of your mouth. Wow. So everyone who is liberal left who got busted for weed or was African-American who got busted for weed no longer could participate in the process. Wow. And there is this fact is, uh, it, it's a moment in time in an extraordinary documentary called 13th, 
Okay. Most people don't realize is that the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution that ended slavery at the end of the Civil War actually carved out the right to have someone in, be an indentured servant or, quote, slave to this day in America in instances of incarceration. And that language also appears in the state constitution of Colorado, lifted from the 13th Amendment. We in Colorado and a number of states across the country two elections ago, or one election ago, two years ago, tried to get rid of that, to try to say we as the people and citizens of Colorado do not support the inclusion of indentured servitude and slavery in our constitution in any circumstance right. or situation. Yeah. But yeah, that's in the United States Constitution, and that is exactly where free prison labor comes in. You know, all Idaho potatoes are picked by federal prisoners. Oh my God! All of them, not like not one, all of them, not one farm, <laughs> all of them. It turns out oh every God. potato picked in Idaho is picked by a federal prisoner. But this documentary, Thirteenth, went into a fascinating, very telling fact, and it's about Georgia. And it says, in the state of Georgia to this day, 30% uh, of the otherwise of age and eligible to vote African-American males in the state of Georgia are ineligible because of a prior felony conviction. 35%. One-third. 33%. So one-third oh of the male African-American population of the state of Georgia is disqualified for, from participating in voting because of a prior felony conviction. And if you ask yourself, we just talked about the 2000 election in Colorado that was decided by 20,000 people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh the states, so there were a handful of states that President Trump won over Senator Clinton in the last presidential election in 2016 in America that came down to one and a half percentage points in a state where only 500,000 people voted. That's yeah. 7,500 people, 7,500 votes. Yeah. Elections are decided by small numbers of people. Georgia's a population that's, uh, I think, around Colorado's, let's say it's 8 million people. If you think about the number of individuals who have been told now that you have no right to participate, you have no voice, you have no say, mm. you have no impact on the final outcome. And what we forget to tell uh -huh. them is they are all still, uh, every one of these young men still have a voice and still have an ability to engage a process, they just don't have the ability or right to vote. Yeah, but yeah. Think about what that means to what ultimately is the representation in a state like Georgia. Wow. What could it be, what should it be, and what is it? Yeah. And that is a direct result. And we, as white people in America, I was not part of these policies, mm -hmm. but that does not make me any less a beneficiary of the end result of it. Yeah. Or any less uh, a participant in how we stop this. Yeah. And um, how do we stop it? Do you think? By first off, being very vocal. Mm -hmm. It is not a negative to be self-reflective and say, I'm looking in the mirror and I love what I see. It's a beautiful country. There's great opportunity. But there's a blemish there. Mm -hmm. And I can either tattoo it and cover it, which is basically what we've done, <laughs> or we can deal with it. Yeah. And... We've got to stop locking kids. We spend in some states more to incarcerate a young man than we spend ever to have educated that same kid over the span of their entire life. My God. We spend as much a year in prison. What also means is maybe we could pull people out of prisons 
put colleges with walls on them and you just can't leave till you pass. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Might be a better use of the same dollar. The college a lot felt like prison for me, so I can see that that being a benefit. And to be honest, if someone locked me in there, maybe I would have had my degree right now. So I took five yet. years. Uh, but no, it's just, it's how do we stop it by one acknowledging? Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what all psychology talks about with the individual as well. It's not about dwelling in your own misery and victimhood. It's acknowledging exactly where you are, good and bad, mm -hmm. and seeing, you know, the dark inside you, that Carl Jung's famous idea of the shadow, you know, like that you have this shadow version of you, which is capable of all the evil of all of humanity. We're all capable of that, but we're all also capable of all the good in society and, mm -hmm. and in humanity. And that thing like looking at your own individual self and acknowledging where you have got privilege or where you've got power, but not being guilty for that thing, but it, like have a look at it and realize where we can make these changes. And that we are a part of that whole process too. I mean, we are capable of it. I mean, that's the creepy thing is like what would happen if we existed in the 1930s, 1938 in Germany, what would you have done? I. It's easy to look at it now and go, they're terrible people, but what really? We're going through done? it in Denver right now. True. If I can obstruct, if I can keep women out, I got an advantage. Yeah, if that's I keep true. anyone who's a minority out, I can keep an advantage. Yeah. But if, what if I was so dumb I never realized I had an advantage, which is most of the ignorant white people that still harbor some of these views. They're too dumb to never realize they had an advantage. Yeah. But they realize enough that if anyone else had an opportunity that they might not go and take advantage of, but they still have the right to, the right to, yeah. and I choose not to exercise that right, that then anyone else is a threat to that right. Yeah. So racism is an, un, an, an individual that lacks self-reflection, mm. feeling in some cases frustrations that are societal, that are resource-driven, that are space-driven around neighborhoods, volume, I mean, people can live in an area, mm. economically driven. Mm. If a person, especially if you talk about, we still segregate ethnic populations, um, uh, Muslim families that are moving to America are predominantly moving into a particular town outside of Detroit, Michigan. Oh, wow. Right, which then feeds, but Italians did that. They moved into neighborhoods, yeah. which perpetuates ignorance and perpetuates, gives it, makes it easier to ostracize someone because you, you're from over there. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. it was economically driven too. So if, you're, if, you're in, in the, if you are the current immigrant population in America, you are likely engaged at the bottom of the economic scale. You are likely in need of basic life necessities, whether it's food, shelter, or clothing. Mm -hmm. You are then, because it's necessities that you need, not a better quality of life and money to go see a movie on Friday, it's necessities that you need. If you can't find an opportunity at the economic scale that is the normal, you'll underbid it yep. in yeah. the hopes of getting the job. Yep. So it becomes economic driven, right? So these become elements of the perpetuation of racism. But for an ignorant white cracker who's closed-minded, in many cases, it's this, it's this self-realization that, oh my God, if this other individual gets an opportunity, if a woman gets a chance to lead, yeah. I'll lose that, I won't, that won't, my opportunity's gone. And even a kid if, won't get it. Yeah, even if, say, a black person or a woman has got all the ideas that's gonna benefit that white person, they still don't, can't hear it. Nope. Yeah, that's so fucking creepy, man. Lack of self-reflection. Yeah, and it's all people at the end of the day, as you said before. I mean, we're all an individual, and we are individual groups that are sort of operating this machinery. 
What would you say to somebody who doesn't want to engage in their politics of their, of their community? I don't care if someone thinks they are engaged in politics or not. Everybody is engaged in politics. They are just choosing not to participate. Yeah. Because the reality is it's going to happen anyway. Yeah. Now, here. What is our ultimate impact in time? And no matter what you do, if you're going to engage politically, remember that you only get the time you get yeah. to have an impact on the process. And someone right after you is going to go and probably change it. <laughs> I use this analogy for elected officials. Elected officials and dogs are very similar. If a dog walks up to a fire hydrant that it marked yesterday and smells its scent, it will probably still mark it again anyway. Okay. And if someone had come along in between its last visit and changed it just a little, they mark it again. Yeah, yeah. So an elected official usually has their sphere of understanding, energy <laughs> policy, prison policy, reform. Uh, they come from the law. They come from water rights. They have a specialty. Yeah. You'll usually see them in all forms of democratic elected government that individuals will focus on the work they already know. Mm -hmm. They know it. They're good at it. And so they'll stick in that wheelhouse. Um, and then the next year, even though they change the like America, we change the laws all the time. You strike this word, add that word, subtly changes it. You'll see the very next year, they'll be back in the same exact <laughs> spot of the code. So the fire hydrants change. Weed is just a new fire hydrant. Yeah. But the desire to come up and, and, and change it is still there. <laughs> um, but politics is very approachable. It is community-based. Look around at your own community and ask, what is the level, what is the lowest level of achievable elected position in my community? And can I or someone I know that I really respect win that seat? No, oh, wow. And then you realize if there's 10,000 people in a town, only 3,000 can participate in voting. How many of those people do you need? Then the, at least in America, the voter rolls of who participated last time is public information. Yeah, okay. So I can go back, pull the public information, and even without all the fancy software we have now in the party, I can pull from that who voted and when, and then take my list of 14,000 Democrats and whittle it down to the 7,000 that actually participate, and then focus on talking to them. Yep. And then uh, only 4,000 have voted in this particular election, and I need 2,000 plus one to win. Knock all 7,000 doors until 2,000 plus one say, I'm with you. Yeah. And do you feel like you, I mean, how far off of your authentic self do you have to go? Like, I feel like politicians tend to put out this horrible, gross front of I'm this person. They're so polished. They're so refined. They're not even a human being. And I think for the most part, like if a politician came knocking at my door, I immediately would be like, I just get away from me. And I don't know how you get through those barriers. Because I'm a multi-time, multi-state failed political candidate. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not sure I'm the best person to ask that either. <laughs> I know. I mean, because you're such a real person. Like, there's always, it's really... Being real is the losing prospect. It is, unfortunately, which really is sad to me because I think in interpersonal relationships, being real is 100% the salvation. It's the thing that creates the best communities. But for some reason, our elected officials have to be the opposite of that. Well goes back to what we were talking about before, people that can handle a nine to five or people that want something more ambitious. Mm -hmm. Your elected officials are people that want something more ambitious, predominantly voted for by a group that goes to work nine to five. <laughs> yeah. And everyone else who's a real person doesn't want to be involved in the process. Right, <laughs> yes. Uh, we, we don't talk religion and politics in this country. That's the big thing. 
They would say, oh, you shouldn't, shouldn't talk religion and politics. Right. No, in fact, we should talk religion and politics on nearly every breath, but we should learn to do it in a respectful way. Mm -hmm. Just because we see the world differently is not an excuse to demonize. Right. Yeah. I Look, politically, if I talk to someone from a completely different political perspective, I'm curious to know about their upbringing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a product of the influences of my upbringing. Yes. What the very conservative people in my life didn't realize was they were actually really liberal in their core. <laughs> yeah. And so the values they were teaching me were liberally inspired, but their politics was somehow very conservative. Isn't that interesting? I mean, from a psychological viewpoint, there are certain types of people that, you know, like they sort of fit into the uh, Meyer Briggs model of psychology that basically says, you know, you're a conscientious person, you're going to sit on the far right, basically the conservative side. Type, it's basically your type of thinking, sure. your process of thinking sure. that could dictate which side you're gonna sit on. But what's funny is that on both the left and the right, on the far sides of each, they're actually more similar to each other personality-wise than they are. <laughs> it's just their politics are different. They're so rigid, they can't think critically, they can't think outside of the box, they can't accept new information. So their mindsets are very there, similar. And there's extremes, the difference is what was plugged in. Mm -hmm. What were the cultural yes, influences the growing up? What was the, the, the financial uh, struggles or not, lack of struggles that they dealt with as a kid? Mm -hmm. yeah. And it goes back to what you were talking about. I mean, that um, element of self-reflection that you can start seeing those unconscious patterns. You know, like the, why you would have this insane bias towards a, different, a person with different colored skin or why you have this insane attachment to like forcing all women to be better than all men or kill all men or whatever, you know? I mean, all those far extremes. It's like you have to see that you're running a program, that you're not mm -hmm. you, the self that's having these ideas, you're running a program for some other reason. That it's, you know, like, you're afraid, likely. You know, you don't mm. know There's what to less believe. fear in Colorado, because we're all smoking weed. <laughs> I know. I will say this, what I've enjoyed around about marijuana in a political environment is, for me, I always smoked, but I could never share that. I always had to hide it. I bet you did, yeah. And so it was that opportunity. I've, I've always been trying to be engaged the process honestly, which has never really helped. <laughs> uh, but not having to hide cannabis consumption and possession yeah, man. is mm -hmm. what opened it up and made it, um, made it more real, yeah. more fun. Absolutely, I bet. So. And also cannabis, in my opinion, uh, it does two things for me at least, which is one, makes me feel, see other people more genuinely so mm -hmm. I can see when somebody's being fake or weird around me. Uh, one example that I was using the other day on a podcast, I was talking about when I watch movies, if I get really stoned and watch a movie, I'll, sometimes I can all of a sudden see the actor acting. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then you're like, oh. and that's how I see around other people, like especially. <laughs> it's funny you say that. Right? <laughs> Run more movies doing that. <laughs> oh, I know. It's, and it's, it's hard to watch TV sometimes because now that I'm tuned to that, even when I'm not stoned, I'll watch it and be like, oh, now you're acting. But uh, I feel like I can see that way around other people. So then it helps you kind of, if both of you are kind of stoned, it lets you drop that wall of pretentiousness of I'm this person and I'm presenting to you this self. And then the second hmm. thing is that it helps you interrelate concepts that wouldn't other be, otherwise be related. And politics should be creative. That, yes, that sense of creativity. I'm always suspect to, to give cannabis too much credit because again, psychoactive, it is altering, it is influencing and that can be both good and bad. Mm -hmm. you no, know, the reality is, and I am a, a heavy cannabis consumer. Yeah, I cannot deny that there are tendencies towards addiction. Yeah, but in the with the amount that I smoke, it's not 
in my life, it does not get in the way of the things that I do creatively mm -hmm. or professionally. We get stuck in a world, especially in politics, where everyone has an agenda generally counter to the one right in front of you. Yep. And how do you balance not showing your cards, showing your cards? And we, we, we spend a lot of time playing games in this world and in this life. Mm -hmm. I think that's what drives the comfort that comes from um, routine that is sometimes the reality of, of our work lives. Yeah. Being stuck in the grind. Uh, some of it's, is, and it's not the individual choosing it, it's like culturally, society is, the group thought has realized over time that if, that if we can numb each other, we can survive. Yeah, yeah, right? man. Like, the burdens of self-reflection and independent thinking and thinking as we, it's described as outside of the box, is, is it's not like, Everyone who does it is not all part of the same community. Right. We are all individually out lost on our own as individuals <laughs> in our path. It's just, I think one of the secrets is, oh, that was a failure. Let me get back up and keep going. Yeah, and keep going and having an alignment to some element of a goal, like some purpose. Purpose driven, yep. purpose driven. Yeah. I see an end that I'm looking to achieve. Yeah. Uh, I started it with the, the the business that was originally inspired by this house that is coming back into the fold because I have this house now seven years later. Um, I was working with an old high school classmate and he said to me one day, why can't you accept what we're doing is failing? And I said something very rude to him. I said, <laughs> failure is reserved for people like you. Oh, People ow. who are willing to accept it. Yeah. I'm going to redirect. Yeah. And I took the same concept and started massaging what I was trying to accomplish, what was the timeline to accomplish that in, and what were the skills, tools, or approaches we'd use to accomplish it. Yeah. And redirected those elements. I didn't just walk away from the entire thing. Yeah. It was reserved. Failure is only reserved for individuals who are willing to accept that failure is an option. You might not end up in the place you set out originally looking to go. But failure is stopping, walking away, giving up, going backwards. Mm -hmm. Moving sideways is not failure. Yeah. It's exploring another path. Oh, we just came up on a river. I guess our exploration west is over, <laughs> said no uh, pioneer. No one ever. Anywhere. <laughs> yeah. they How said, can we get the fuck across this we've river? We've either got to move up to the, I'm either <laughs> taking a right or a left to the river right in front of me using mm -hmm. basic math. Things are perpendicular to each other. And I'm looking for a shallow spot. I'm looking for the headwater. It could yeah. be a mile. It could be 10 miles. It could be 100 miles. Mm -hmm. But you don't stop. Yeah. And that goal is the thing that drives you. What do you think it is that drives you? It's generally purpose. Yeah. It's generally spite. <laughs> no, I'm saying, no, I laugh. How many, how many people tell you in your life that you can't do things? Yeah, yeah. I've been told at every turn when I got out of college and started working the way I was working in the world, I was told by a college classmate that that's not the way the real world works. Mm -hmm. You better go out and get a real job before that, that ship sails. Yeah, man. And uh, that was a friend gave me that advice, right? You better stop this independent living and trying to build your own thing because that's how you fail. What he doesn't know is that a boss who was a real mentor to me told me, the day you graduate from college, you walk in this door and ask for a job, I'll give it to you. Wow. But I don't want you to take it. Mm -hmm. I want you to go out in the real world, try something and fail. And when you fail, come back to me with life experience and I'll show you a career. Yeah, wow. And he asked me if I understood the difference. 
And that's someone saying, take risks in life because mm -hmm. there is value in taking a risk. Yeah, what do you think that value is? The value, well, the... It's hard because so little of the things that we make in the world today are tangible. Mm -hmm. we, don't make, we don't make things. That's why it's so great you're an artist. You physically create something. Mm -hmm. The product of the effort is clear when it's done. Yeah. Uh, so much of what we create are ideas in the world now and money, mm -hmm. which you can't wrap your head around. Um, I like having control over what I think about. Mm -hmm. You cannot do that punching a clock for someone else. Yep. You lose a sense of that. Yeah. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole because if anyone listening that is, is living in that reality, there's value in that. There's honor yeah. in that. Absolutely. There is the ability to provide for family. There's the ability to, to have the basics mm -hmm. and hopefully do better than that. Um, but for me, I, I thrive in structure. I would have thrived in structure. I was always a f afraid of independence. Mm -hmm, me too. I was uh, actually afraid of having too many options. <laughs> yeah. Do absolutely anything. What do you do? And uh, I went from minimum wage jobs in college to getting to dictate what a day looks like. Yeah, it's so awesome, man. I was in a position to be able to add this to this emerging collection of castles I have. <laughs> yeah. And you've got a dispensary too, right? 14, I, I can't say a lot. Yes, I own a, a, a nice piece, not a not, not half, not a quarter, a nice piece of a dispensary here in Denver. It's a one-off location. Ah, uh, cool. Uh, the one I'm involved with now is the fourth, the fourth cannabis business I've been involved with. It's pretty the way, um, I haven't seen it in person yet, but just seeing the pictures of it online, it's beautiful. Simply pure. Yeah, Very it's pretty. really nice. Very pretty. Yeah, well, we gotta get out there. I gotta go and see this place. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, man, it was great talking to you. If anyone wants to find out more about what you do or get involved in the, that film um, pr production company sounds really cool. You're doing a lot of documentaries out of there. My film, Public Enemy Number 1, should be coming out. Uh, should see an early version for release late 2018, early 2019. Cool. Uh, it's coming out through Aletheia Films. Okay. And then um, this is the Patterson Inn. P-A-T-T-E-R-S-O-N-I-N-N.com, PattersonInn.com. Uh, it is not part of what we're doing yet, but it is part of, and maybe we have to have the conversation about what it means to legally or illegally consume cannabis in Denver. That's right. And Colorado is still undefined. And so we're moving into social consumption. And Denver is the first city in the world that has created a legal local municipal path to what it means to have a social consumption license. Cool. So there is thoughts that the Patterson Inn has a future as an adult marijuana social consumption hotel. Cool. And the address above the door is <laughs> where I think there's a future. Address is 420 East 11th Avenue. Yeah. And 420 is a number for certainly anyone in cannabis culture or cannabis consumer is engaged and informed of what that means. Yes, man. And from a marketing standpoint, that's just marketing gold. Right? Yeah, well, and it's an awesome space for it, man. Thank you. I would love it. You let me know as soon as that happens because I'll be the first customer. Can't wait to welcome you back. <laughs> cool, man. Thank you. You're welcome.